Thanks for tuning in to JR's Hunt for Life Suicide Prevention Podcast Safe Talk with Jenny Hunter and Billy Floyd, where there are no judgments and talk saves lives. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are now going to chop up a little safe talk, and I couldn't do it without my partner in crime, Jenny Hunter. What's going on, Jenny? Billy, it's so great to be here and with everyone. It's a great day, and I'm so glad we're going to be talking about a subject that is um, affecting everyone all over the globe. Jenny, your energy is so infectious, and to talk with you, to share your story, it is truly my honor. I am so pleased to be here. Now, for a little background, everybody listening, Jenny, we used to have the best time. Jenny would come on Good Morning Wyoming on KTWO in Casper, Wyoming, and we would do Safe Talk Tuesdays, where for about five to seven minutes, we would talk about all things suicide, warning signs, how to open up, what should be done, what are you looking for, we really hit home on a lot of major topics. Now, Jenny, this is finally the time where we're going to dive deeper. We're going to learn more about your overall experience, the life of JR. I'm looking forward to this, and I know this is a very different experience for you because you have never publicly talked about what happened. And now we're really going to get into things. So, Jenny, how do you want to start off? This is the first time you're opening up about this chapter of your life. So I'm going to let you take it away. Let's talk about JR a little bit. Who was he as a boy? This is your son. It's your time to talk. Well, thank you, Billy. Um, first of all, let me uh, let everyone know that this may contain some graphic content, and I want to give some trigger warnings to people out there, uh, the last thing I want to do is to trigger anyone or cause some feelings that are unnecessary. So um, I think that would be appropriate. Um, you are right. This is the first time I've ever um, spoken out loud about JR's story. Um, JR Hunter was our son. He took his life at the age of 36. He was a very, very outgoing, um, energetic young person, very young person. He enjoyed all outdoor activities, uh, mountain activities, and skiing, and hunting, and everything like that from a young age. Um, he was he grew up in an environment where he was on teams at school and he had many many friends and you know at that time in our lives um we uh, suicide is nothing that we ever considered or really ever uh dealt with or had experienced any losses or it was just a happy time as a child growing up. 29 years ago, my husband's middle brother took his life. And that is the first um, 
time in our family that we experienced any type of deep grief and loss such as this. Uh, he, he did not um, give any warnings or it had not. This was now, remember, 29 years ago, uh, mental illness was not quite fashionable yet, and there was a, a big stigma that surrounded it. And it was a shock to the entire family. So uh, that was our first experience with suicide. Uh, so we continued on as a family, and JR continued to grow. And he had a very eventful um, high school and on, like I said, on teams and friends and traveling and this type of thing. And as he grew, um, he, he wanted to learn more about life and do more things. And he was a very happy, happy person. Um, now as I get into this, I want to tell this story to, I want to be very respectful to his memory and to him. And I want our listeners to hear what he would want them to hear, as well as what I want them to hear. Um, so he was he was very creative, a very sensitive young man, young person. Uh, he was deep feeling and deep thinking, and he was fiercely loyal to family and friends. He was adventurous <laughs> to the point of being fearless. I, I mean, he would do things that I would never dream of. Uh, and that was just part of his personality. He was very intelligent. Um, and as he grew a little bit older, he became an entrepreneur. Uh, he owned a pizza parlor in town. He bought that actually he sold all of his photographic equipment to buy that because he wanted his own business. And he had that business paid off in five years. I mean, he was a real go-getter. Um, and along with that, he was a tireless hunter and outdoorsman. He was a sought-after hunting guide in our community. People would come in from out of state and request him to be their hunting guide. Um, his specialty was elk. And there are a lot of hunters that want a good size elk, uh, you know, under their wing. Um, he was a teacher. He loved to teach people about his passion, which was outdoors and hunting. And he had a great respect for the outdoors and for nature. He taught um his dad and I, how to hunt. We had never hunted before. He taught us how to hunt. And he taught us that when we go into an, an outdoor area, we leave it the same way as we went in. Uh, we don't leave trash. We don't leave tire marks. We, we leave it just like it was when we went in. I think I said that he was an intelligent person. His teachers would tell us that even though he would skip class, which we would get calls daily from the high school saying he skipped class, but when he went in to take a test, he always aced it. And he never had a problem with school at all. Um, he was a popular boy. 
he was um, very good looking boy, but but he was very humble. You would not have known that he had all of these friends. But we we did not have a lot of money. We're, we were like a typical lower middle class family. Um, my husband and I both work and we did everything we could with our kids as far as their sports and activities. So we're a pretty close-knit family. As he became a little bit older and he had bought his business and he had, prior to buying that business, he uh, started a photography business, an outdoor photography business called The Way I See It. And it was the great outdoors and it was the wildlife and anything that he could catch on camera. He had never taken pictures before. And now, mind you, this was before cell phones and that type of camera. (laughs) So he learned on 35 millimeter cameras and he took awesome photographs. And at this point in time, we still have his website up um, with his photographs, some of them on there. He has thousands and thousands of slides. Um, But if I may, his website is called www.jrhunterphotography.com. And we do um, sell those photographs and use them for our nonprofit now. Um, But his, his photographs are hanging all over the United States and people order them from that, from me or for, from someone that I know, we'll order those photos and send them out to them. And this was his great, great love was outdoors. So he, it was hard for him. He wanted to buy a business and he wanted to, you know, settle down. And he had been traveling for his photography. He went to Canada and Alaska and uh, different states in the United States to take pictures of different types of outdoors and animals and uh, sea life and all that type of thing. Um, So he, when he found this business, he, he sold all of his photography equipment in order to buy the business. And um, he was glad he did because the business was successful and um, he was a real go getter at anything that he tried. So it went well for him up until that time. Now, Jenny, it is as clear as day that he was a true Wyoming cowboy who did nothing but impact. He would teach. He would be out there hunting, instructing others how to hunt, taking photos, running his own business, doing everything for the community while choosing himself, doing what he was passionate about, and that speaks incredible volumes. And when you detail his whole story, Jenny, it's hard not to smile because you just hear greatness, 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 doing wonderful things, enjoying this life. You had a tight family. It was beautiful. But when a tragedy like this happens, what happens before that, is always dark adversity. Something went wrong. There were certain issues that built up and became this giant brick wall of disaster, whatever it might be. So Jenny, after detailing this extraordinary life he lived, what type of pain and misfortune happened for him to get to a point 
where he did what he did and we're here talking about it today. What adversity led to this? Well, Billy, when I talk to people about what leads to suicide, I put out my left arm and kind of wave my hand around and say, now these are all of the things that happen in life. Over on my left side are all of the things that happen in life. Um, uh, loss of a loved one, addiction, alcoholism, losing your job, uh, being sick, maybe having a terminal illness, all of those types of things uh, are on my left side. But then when I move to the right side with my hand out, this is hopelessness on the right side. This is where a person reaches when they become suicidal. So suicide is not the problem, so to speak. It is hopelessness. All of these things on the left side that I'm talking about that people encounter during their life are not the things that lead to hopelessness. They, they in their um, complexity and enormity, uh, a person, everyone is an individual, and it depends on that individual how these things are going to impact them and what will lead them to that hopelessness, which is the main precursor to suicide ideation and suicide. Um, so as a business owner, he was busy, busy, busy. Uh, he was running his business, and without being critical or judgmental, I want to go into his personal life. And if I, I will not use names, but I will talk about what happened because this does happen to many people that I have encountered and I've heard their stories. And it, it is surprising how they mirror each other in many ways. So, uh, he met a young lady and nine years younger than he was. And at first, it was a wonderful thing, and they were absolutely committed to each other, and they wanted a future together. He was very, he's a very non-judgmental person, very non-judgmental. He had a tattoo on his arm that said, only God could judge me. He did not judge anyone. He he expect, expected all of them to be themselves, and he accepted them exactly where they were and how they were. He never put anything on them to behave a certain way around him before he would uh, uh, like them or anything like that. So he met this young lady, uh, and they had a re began a relationship. During that time, uh, they got she she was. Uh, I had some prescriptions of sleeping pills, and he uh, sometimes couldn't sleep at night, so he would take a sleeping pill. Um, and that is uh, one of the things that he did not need in his life. As a young uh, man in his 20s, he experienced uh, kidney stones. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? You know, many people have kidney stones, but his doctor prescribed him a prescription pain medication. 
And if anyone has ever had kidney stones, any anyone, male or female, they know how painful they are. I've never had them. Male or female, they're very, very painful. And he took pain medication. And one time wouldn't have been so bad, but he had them multiple times and he had multiple surgeries. And he kept asking and requesting the doctors not, he, was there any other type of uh, prescription he could get that was not as addictive as what they were giving him? Unfortunately, every other medication he tried did not relieve the pain like the addictive uh, prescriptions. So he became addicted to those pills. Uh, he, When he met this young lady uh, and began taping sleeping pills, that led to more addiction and it became a vicious cycle. Uh, he, he, he paid for his own uh, inpatient treatment to, in an attempt to you know, get these drugs out of his life. Um, addiction is a terrible, terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. And it just adds up uh, and piles up and it seems like more and more things come on you once you have an addiction. Um, so on with this relationship, uh, they both became addicted to different types of drugs, even though he still owned his business and was working at it and uh, seemingly normal, so to speak, life. Uh, they had bought a house. Uh, and they were living in the house, and eventually they married. At that point, he he still hunted, he still guided. You, you know, you can become a functioning um, addict if you if you treat it correctly, and that is what he was doing. And he had to control the kidney stones and everything else going on. He would go on hunting trips. And this young lady um, became adulterous uh, when he was out of town. And um, he did not know that for a while. But at one point, he uh, encountered her with one of their friends. And then he knew, um, sadly, it broke his heart. Uh, and then began the deep, deep downward spiral. He continued uh, trying with self-care to uh, search out help from practitioners with antidepressants um, and other things to the medication that doctors prescribe to help with addiction, to keep, you know, keep you safe from addiction. Um, and I might add also that, uh, the men in, uh, our family, my husband and the men on, um, his side of the family are and have been, uh, diagnosed bipolar manic depressive. Now, this is all a big co comorbidity, as you can imagine. 
And uh, he, once he had gone to doctors to find out, you know, get help with the addictions and uh, his mental attitude after finding that she was not faithful to him and he still loved her. And like I explained before, he's fiercely loyal, fiercely. And he wanted to help her and he wanted her to be well also from this um, drug addiction. And he he just he would not uh, turn his back on her or anyone for that matter. So he continued with medication for the mental illness that had creeped up on him uh, and um, continued trying to treat the addiction that he was um, living with. Um, now let me talk about hereditary mental illness for just a minute since we're there. Uh, The men in the family, my husband has two brothers. And both brothers, uh, now uh, 20-some, 30 years ago, bipolar really did not exist. It was a brand new thing that, as I discovered, no one really believed in yet, and they didn't know how to treat this up-and-coming mental illness. They didn't know what it was, what to name it, anything like that. And that is what happened to my husband's middle brother when he took his life. As we look back now, we realize that he did have the bipolar thing going on. Um, And his older brother had attempted a few times, uh, is still alive today. And one of uh, my husband's brother's sons, he had attempted a few times and he had been diagnosed with this same mental illness and he became a diabetic in his early 40s and um, he developed a gangrene type thing with the diabetes and he because he did not want to live and he was so deeply sad and depressed and uh, things that surrounded him he decided and told us that that was how he was going to actually depart he was not going to treat this gangrene and that is how he passed so in our eyes yes that was a suicidal loss And that kind of encompasses a few ways that people think about suicide, how they determine they're going to take their life. It's not by the textbook. Uh, Our family has seen suicides that are not, and I hate to say textbook, but um, they're not what people expect or think that suicide is. Um, so back to the marriage and the relationship, um, he, he wanted deeply to get help with his addictions and he had requested quite a few times that I research, uh, and he would research places to go and they were all inpatient programs and he would not leave his wife because he 
um, knew what had been going on with her and he did not want to leave her and leave himself open for more heartache, so to speak. So he continued uh, to try and deal with his addictions with um, local physicians and medication and um, treat his mental illness of depression and bipolar and he he was so uh serious and desperate he sought out a counselor that was specialty was suicide uh prevention and he even paid for his own suicide prevention counseling uh and like i said he had gone inpatient for addiction to try and help those issues and i I became so desperate. At some point, we will talk about how a parent feels about this, but I became so desperate that I actually videoed him and her for the program called Intervention that at that time was very popular on TV, thinking maybe I could get them both in for help and then he wouldn't have to he wouldn't feel bad about trying to leave his house for addiction treatment. So that's kind of um, where I was at that point and where he was. And it was a constant, constant battle on everyone's part, uh, mine and his and hers and trying to control um the the addictions and the depression and everything that comes along with that which as i described would be on my left hand that i'm holding out all of those things over there on that side uh started adding up now jenny that's a tough path to talk about and for you to open up as a mother as an individual i mean it's very admirable that you can do this and I'm so appreciative of you. And I know a lot of listeners are really going to tap in and understand this is not something easy to do and you're making it look very easy. And now I really want to ask you because this is not an easy question to answer. I'm sure this whole thing is extremely challenging to talk about, but the way you're handling it, I really love it. It's going to change lives. So with that, I want to ask you, as the addictions kind of piled up and the severity enhanced, the relationship was all over the place, his journey was looking pretty blurred and he was getting help, which was great, but things got pretty brutal. And I want to know, Jenny, was there a moment where you thought this is intense. I'm I'm scared he might take his life. Was there a moment? Did you ever fear that? I know we're going to talk more about the days prior, the actual occurrence and that side in the second episode. But before we leave today, what's the answer to that? Was there ever a moment where it really hit you like this could happen or was it totally a surprise? 
well, um, Billy, I will say that it was a build-up. Uh, he had some other things happen in his life, which we will go into in the next episode. And as these things added up, I continued to think, how much more can a person th- uh, take? How, how I couldn't take this much in my life. How is he taking this? How is he surviving this? What's going to happen? Uh, he's paying for his own um, counseling for suicidal thoughts. He's trying to stay on top of it. And I think it doesn't ever become a reality until it actually takes place. Until that time, you continue to have hope. And you continue to think there, there's no way this is going to happen. This can't happen to my child. I have hope that he's going to come through this. He's doing everything right that he can do right. He's, uh, he's trying his very hardest to overcome this. And I'm trying my very hardest to help him. And uh, surely this type of thing is not going to happen. And I started um, attending uh, suicide prevention uh, trainings on my own to learn what signs to watch for and what to listen for uh, if it were to get uh, very, very risky. I... I did this in preparation so I could pay attention and get him the help that he needed in case there were uh, an emergency that, um, you know, I needed to recognize. Because at, at that point in time, I I was new to this. I didn't know I was supposed to be watching and recognizing and listening. And I did everything I could to learn what to watch for, what to listen for, um, to and to figure out how are we close, are we not close, am I losing my mind here, uh, is there something else I need to be doing. You know, as a parent, you would walk the ends of the earth for your child. And that is basically what I was trying to do. So... So to answer your question, it was it was not a surprise. However, it was a surprise in in the aspect that I did not see that as a reality coming. I couldn't even imagine. Simply just, it's mind-numbing. And like I said, for you to open up like this and speak on this platform, it's just going to create tidal waves of lives being saved. I'll never forget, Jenny, one time you messaged me and you told me that somebody saw our Good Morning Wyoming segment and they instantly listened to our conversation, reverted it to their life and their son, the mother, and she ended up driving to Utah and had a conversation with her son based on what she saw us talk about on GMW. And ultimately 
it led to his life being saved because he got helped, he got checked out, and that's just one life that we didn't lose. It doesn't matter the numbers. We are going to change this cycle. Everybody across the country talking about suicide prevention, it really means all the difference. So for me to be on this platform with you where I can help you share your story so other families don't have to go through what you went through, it is truly my privilege. And I'm so grateful to be here, and I am super excited to get into episode two which will come out in a couple of weeks from now. This was the wrap of episode one, our safe talk segment. Like I said earlier, we're going to dive deeper into those days leading up to it, what happened, the aftermath. We're going to go from there, and we're really going to hit everything on the head and make sure the people really know the truths about these situations so they can evade it and never have to go through it. Jenny, I want to give a standing ovation on my own to you for being yourself, for telling people how it is, not holding back. And this is the first time you've ever done this. So you should be very pleased and very, very proud of what you did. Great job today, Jenny. Well, thank you so much, Billy. And uh, it is my great privilege to tell our son's story and hopefully he will be saving lives. I know it for a fact. Jenny, thank you so much for your time. We're going to keep going the hardest, and I will see you, and we will see all the listeners for episode (laughs) two. Have a lovely one. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to JR's Hunt for Life Suicide Prevention Podcast Safe Talk with Jenny Hunter and Billy Floyd, where there are no judgments and talk saves lives. Jenny Hunter is the founder of JR's Hunt for Life, a suicide prevention nonprofit movement offering hope and support globally. I'm Billy Floyd. I'm a podcast host, a media broadcaster, and most importantly, a positive influencer. Sounds of Soul Music is courtesy of Fearless Motivation. Find out more about JR's Hunt for Life at jrshuntforlife.org. If someone in your life is feeling suicidal, it's important to take immediate action. Here are some steps you can take to help. Number one. Stay calm and listen. It's important to approach the situation with a calm demeanor. Listen to their concerns and validate their feelings. No judgments. Let them know you're there to help and support them. Number two, take it seriously. It's crucial to take any suicidal thoughts or feelings seriously. Don't downplay or dismiss their concerns. And don't promise confidentiality if you feel the person is in immediate danger. Number three, seek professional help. Encourage the person to seek help from a mental health professional like a therapist or a counselor. Offer to help them make an appointment and offer to accompany them to their first session. Be sure to follow through. Number four, 
call emergency services. If the person is in immediate danger, call 911. If it's safe for you, stay with the person until professionals are with them and continue to offer support. Number five, remove potential means. If you know the person has access to firearms, medications, or other potentially lethal objects, try to remove them from the person's immediate environment as long as it's safe for you to do so. If it is not safe for you to remove potential means, advise emergency services of the situation. Remember, Suicidal thoughts and feelings are a sign of intense emotional pain and should be taken very seriously. By offering support and taking appropriate action, you can help someone in crisis get the help they need. Another thing to know is that 988, the National Crisis Line, which used to be 1-800-LIFELINE, cannot track your location unlike 911. Therefore, they cannot directly send an ambulance to you and must make several phone calls to do so. Additionally, when you call 988, they will connect you to a regional crisis center based on the area code from which you were calling. So it's essential to know the appropriate crisis line to call based on your location and the level of crisis. If someone actually did something to try to not be alive, call 911 or take them to the ER. If they are thinking about doing something, consider calling 988 first. They can help you decide if you need to take additional steps. Action and ideas are two different things. You can learn how to tell them apart and what to do about it, as well as find more information and support around suicide prevention by joining our private Facebook group at JR's Hunt for Life, a confidential safe space where there's no judgment and talk saves lives.